The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, good morning. It's good to be together as we gather to look at God's Word this morning. If you're watching on our live stream, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're watching, and we're, we're glad that technology can serve us for those who are sick or homebound, but we don't want to communicate that virtual participation is a substitute for gathering together as we carry out the one another's. And so I'm glad you're here in person. And if you're in the Twin Cities, we invite you to join us in person as well. Let me just give a brief word. Our historical pattern at Bethlehem has been in January to preach on sanctity of human life and ethnic harmony back to back. And this often coincides with Martin Luther King Jr. Day and sanctity of human life. Sunday. So this morning, we're going to look at the topic of ethnic harmony from Psalm 133. So would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord for help? Father in heaven, we're asking that you would come by the power of your spirit and give us eyes to see more of your beauty and glory at work in our world and at work in our church. We pray that the name of Christ would be greatly exalted and that we would see more of Jesus this morning. Do that work in and through us for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder this morning how many of us would rather get a root canal than talk about race or racism. This is a volatile topic in our world. These types of conversations can often be difficult or uncomfortable. They cause polarization and division. And we've seen some of that even within our own church in the last 12 months or so. And some of you this morning might be thinking, can you just stop talking about this so much? And others of you are saying, you don't talk about it enough. We wish you would talk about it more. And we just come from different places and have different perspectives as we approach this issue of ethnic harmony. Let me just list kind of the different perspectives that come to my mind as I think about this issue. Some of us, our, some of us are ethnic minorities. Others of us are immigrants or refugees or maybe a few generations removed from when our grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents first immigrated. Maybe your family or family close to you has walked the journey of cross-cultural or transracial adoption, and you've seen the hardships connected to that. Many here this morning have inter-ethnic or interracial marriages. Some of you are missionaries or former missionaries, and you've lived years and perhaps even decades in another culture and another place. Some of you are missionary kids having grown up in another culture, speaking other languages. I imagine that most of us this morning have supported and prayed for the gospel to take root among a people and a culture halfway around the world that we've never been to. And we all have different perspectives, experiences, and thoughts when it comes to this topic and issue. 
And that's a really good thing. We're not just the same, but we bring a diversity of opinions and thoughts as we look at this complex issue. And yet this morning, we come collectively to hear from one perspective, and that is God's word. And that's where so often we get it wrong, that if we go anywhere besides God's word to try to address these issues, we're going to get left in a ditch. We're going to get it wrong. And so this morning, I want to call us to let God's word this morning shape and mold our thoughts and our desires and our instincts when it comes to this issue. Because it's so easy to be swept along with our culture and how they think and talk about this. Let me say one more thing before we jump into Psalm 133. The Bible doesn't airbrush over ethnic hatred or ethnic strife. But it also approaches this topic with great and glorious hopefulness. All of human history is headed towards Revelation 7, where there will be from every tribe and language and tongue and nation gathered around the throne, worshiping Jesus. And we get a foretaste of that even now in our gatherings. And so we're headed there. And so instead of dreading this topic, I hope that it's an opportunity for us to display once again and to be reminded of the glorious power of the gospel at work in a people that loves and knows Christ. So here's my plan this morning. We're going to walk through Psalm 133 to see the beauty of unity. And then I want to turn to the New Testament to show where that unity comes from and then conclude with a few applications and implications for us as a body. And my aim this morning is that we would see that Christ-like love and unity is the foundation for how we engage this issue. That Christian love and unity is the foundation for how we engage these issues. It's a call to let Christian unity be the banner that flies over this place and how we address this issue and really every hard issue that we'll need to face as the people of God. So now we come to Psalm 133. Let me read it again for us to remind us of it. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The inscription for Psalm 133 says it's a psalm of ascent, which means the people of Israel would have sung this psalm as they made their pilgrimage, their journey up to Jerusalem very often, whenever they would observe various festivals and feasts. And the inscription also says that it's written by David. And the psalm says very simply that it's good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity, and then it gives us two images that sort of illustrate this in verses two and three. Now, the, the use of the word brothers here goes beyond the household or even relatives, but it refers to all those who would identify with the people of God. So as the people of God are gathering together and making their way up to Jerusalem, they're, they're, they're singing this song to say it's good when we're 
together and we're unified. It's sweet and pleasant. And this refers to all the Israelites, all of God's people as they're making their journey up. And so the central argument of this psalm is that Christian unity is good and pleasant. It's not just within a family structure, but it's all of the people of God. Christian unity is good and pleasant. Now, we know that disunity runs rampant. It's not just automatic that, you know, when you gather together with family that you're all of a sudden unified. Many of us spent some time with our families earlier during the holidays, and we saw how there are certain topics we can't talk about, certain things we, we need to tread lightly. It's like stepping on eggshells with our family. Or perhaps you didn't see some of your family because we know that disunity and disharmony often is a result. We felt some of this even last year among the elders and staff. And yet, since the beginning of time, we see that sin corrupts every single relationship, even the very first family, Adam and Eve and their two sons. And one was murdered by the other because of jealousy. We don't need to look far to see disunity at work in our world. But Psalm 133 paints this picture of how Christian unity is a beautiful and glorious reality. And then he gives us two images to sort of kind of bring life and texture to this. In verse 2 it says, It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. This first image is of priestly anointing which is pretty foreign to most of us. When was the last time you took a little bottle of, you know, extra virgin olive oil and poured it over the head of your neighbor? My guess is probably not ever. The closest I've ever come is when we gather in the prayer room over here and James 5:14 says, "Anoint the sick with oil." And so we have oil and we pray for the sick and we anoint them with oil. But very often I'm trying not to get it on their clothes. We, we don't pour, you know, half the bottle over their head. We, we kind of dab just a little bit. But here we get this image of this lavish oil that is running down all the way onto the collar. This is a culturally unfamiliar image. And so I want to help us see this more clearly by turning to Exodus chapter 30, verses 22 I'm going to read it, and you can follow along in your Bible if you like. And this is kind of painting a picture of the anointing of Aaron as a priest of God. And I think it serves as the background for us to understand what's going on in this image. And if we don't have this background, we don't get it. So, Exodus chapter 30, starting in verse 22. And it says, The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest of spices, of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. Verse 29. 
You shall consecrate them, and they may be most holy. Whoever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. You shall not make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. This is the background for the image that we get in Psalm 133. And what's the word that we hear repeated again and again and again in Exodus 30 there? That it's holy. This is a beautiful, glorious reality. It's a gift from God. Make this perfume-like, valuable oil and use it. And everyone who touches of it will become holy. This is the priestly anointing that is holy and sacred and a blessing from God. And it's being lavished upon Aaron. And he's trying to paint the picture so that we feel the importance and the preciousness of unity within the body of Christ. It is holy to be unified together as the people of God. This would be similar to the anointing that Jesus would have received from the sinful woman in Luke 7, 36 to 50, where Jesus goes in and and he's given no water to wash his feet. And here comes this woman. She breaks open the alabaster jar of ointment and, and puts it on Jesus' feet along with her tears and uses her hair to anoint Jesus. And there's the smell of perfume that fills the room. There is this expression of love and thanksgiving and high honor. And that's the picture that the psalmist is painting for us here in 133. It is glorious to enjoy the sweetness of Christian unity. It is a holy and sacred, blessed thing from God. It is precious. It's a sweet aroma to the senses. It's not that big jug of canola oil that you get from Costco. It's the little vial of sweet-smelling essential oil. You know, the most expensive oil is $2,000 per ounce. It would be like that precious oil being lavished upon the priest. The second image is in verse 3, where it says, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. So Mount Hermon would have been 50 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it would sit at about 9,500 feet elevation, and it was a snow-capped mountain. And then Zion would have been about 2,500 feet in elevation where Jerusalem would sit. And so there's this picture of snow and dew covering Mount Hermon that would trickle down from there. Like snow that melts in the mountains. And then fills all of the rivers and streams and creeks. And it would give life to all that would touch The Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. So here we get this image of water and snow melting that would give life to everything around it. 
And in the same way, unity among the people of God is one of the ways God gives life and blessing to his people. So very simply, Psalm 133 is trying to tell us that unity is good and pleasant and beautiful and life-giving, and it's all from God. It's a gift from God for his people. But what Psalm 133 doesn't tell us is how do we get it? How does it come about? It just tells us that it's precious, it's good, it's pleasant, but then it raises the question of how do we then experience it? How do we obtain it? If unity is like the consecration of a priest, it's like the dew that flows from the mountains that gives life to everything else, how do we then get it? And I think this psalm gives us a hint. It's saying that it's like the consecration of a priest that will mediate between God and man that will lead to blessing and life everlasting. And it's pointing us forward to a greater priest who would come, Jesus Christ, the great high priest who would unify his people once for all through his work on the cross and he would bring about the blessing of God and eternal life. And so what I want to do in in the second half of our sermon is to look at the blood-bought unity of Jesus. So turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And as we turn to the New Testament to see the blood-bought unity that is obtained by Jesus, let me just read a few lines from the elders' document on ethnic harmony. It's called Ethnic Harmony Affirmations and Denials. I linked to it in my email on Friday. You can find it on the website. But it says this under one of the points. We affirm that the church must maintain the unity, including ethnic harmony, that Christ powerfully created. We affirm God's calling on all Christians to love one another as Christ loved us by means of kindness, forgiveness, and humble self-sacrifice. We deny that any self-defining characteristic is more significant than our identity in Christ. So the unity of Christians— of the local church, is not something we have to strive to bring about, but it's a reality that Christ powerfully created. And so, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16, we see that glorious blood-bought unity. Let me read that for us. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision— which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is the state of the world. But then he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The picture of Ephesians 2 here 
As Paul writes to this church, he says the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were separated from Christ. There was this dividing wall of hostility. They were alienated to the promises of God that were given to Israel. They had no hope. They were estranged and they were far off. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, where there was once hostility and division. Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of ethnic hatred, of ethnic animosity, of ethnic partiality. Racial, ethnic, and cultural hatred has no place any longer in the body of Christ because all those who are in Christ have been washed and sanctified and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And so the unity we see in Psalm 133 that is so beautiful and good and pleasant and precious, we get explicitly here in Ephesians that Jesus is the one that has united all of us, whatever our backgrounds, wherever we come from, whatever our socioeconomic positions, whatever our ethnicity, race, whatever it is, whatever your sin. Jesus, King Jesus, has brought us together so that we might be unified in Christ. The fact that the church in Ephesus was comprised of Jews and Gentiles wasn't a defect, but it was a feature. It was an opportunity to to display the power of the gospel in overcoming hundreds of years of hostility and animosity and hatred. The fact that Jews and Gentiles had to be together in the same church, got to be together in the same church, it displayed the power of Christ and the unity of the Spirit to not only cause these two groups to coexist, but to truly love one another and to be united in one mind, one heart, one Spirit, one Christ, one Lord and Savior, and one church. Jesus died for his bride. So that his bride would reveal his glory and praiseworthiness. So in our affirmations and denials document, under ethnic diversity, we say, we affirm that the church should prize and welcome the ethnic harmony that Jesus purchased with his blood. Because that glorifies God. We deny that ethnic diversity should be an end in itself that we pursue at any cost. We deny that diversity should be treasured above biblical fidelity and sound doctrine. We will not make it number one. It's not the biggest deal. Jesus is the biggest deal. That's who we have to come under. We have to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, our ethnic diversity in the church should be prized and welcomed because it glorifies God and it shows the power of God to dismantle ethnic hatred and to transform every single heart, to overcome prejudice and hatred and hostility. And I praise God, I really do. As I think about this people, and I've reflected on my, I don't know, four and a half years here, I have seen what I believe is a people that loves the Lord Jesus Christ and longs to make every person who walks in through these doors feel welcome. And I would just pray, oh God, do more of that, I pray. Make it more of a greater reality here in this body. The unity of the church 
has been bought by the blood of Jesus. Where that vial of one ounce of whatever oil for $2,000, one drop of the blood of Christ could not be purchased with all the money in the world, including your cryptocurrency. Not a single drop, and yet Jesus lavishes it upon us so that we might overcome all of the division and hatred and polarization that we see at work in our world and that creeps into the church as well. So, I want to move us to a number of implications and applications as we look at this. The first implication is that we ought to be amazed at our salvation. We ought to be amazed at our salvation. The first thing we want to do is to celebrate and enjoy what God celebrates and enjoys. And we praise God that he saved us by his grace. This is the starting point for all of us. We will think less of others if we think we somehow deserve to be here. That we somehow did something. We were smarter. We were more educated. We had more money to earn our place before God of heaven and earth. But when we realize that the foot of the cross is all level ground, we just come and we marvel that God has saved a sinner such as us. We have been graciously and generously welcomed into God's family so that we might be a people who is stunningly amazed that we have been saved by grace. Deep humility ought to characterize every true and mature Christian. There is no room for pride or arrogance or prejudging others. There is no room at the foot of the cross to think more highly of yourself than others. We are to be amazed at our salvation and what Jesus has purchased by his blood. The second implication is that we are to maintain the unity of Christ. We are to maintain the unity that Christ has powerfully created by his blood. He has torn down the wall of hostility that divided Jews and Gentiles. How dare any one of us try to pick up the bricks and build it back up again? And so we refuse here in this church to allow the world to divide us along any artificial lines of race or ethnicity or any other difference. It doesn't mean that we're not going to talk about these things or our experiences or the things taking place in culture. But we will come to these things and every dividing issue with a commitment to maintain the unity that we have in Christ. Too often when we come across a hard dynamic within the church, we're inclined to run away, to label that group or those individuals, find a new small group, a new Sunday school class or a new friend rather than to work it through. And just very practically, it means we're going to have to work harder at loving one another as Christ has loved us. We are to maintain what Christ has done. It could be our differences in ethnicity or cultural background, but it could be our regional background, family size, season of life, stage of life, disability, 
schooling choices, social status, and the list just goes on and on. But we are not a church that is made up of cliques and subgroups, but we are the blood-bought people of God. Amen? And so we're going to seek to show kindness and forgiveness and humble self-sacrifice towards others. The third implication is that we want to embrace our preeminent, our primary identity, which is in Christ. In our Affirmations and Denials documents, we say, we deny that any self-defining characteristic is more significant than our identity in Christ. So when you come into this church, you're not mainly black or white. You're not mainly politically left or right. You're not mainly you know, anti-racist or a racist or victim or oppressor or pro this or pro that. The framework of the Bible is that you are either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. And if you come in here and you're outside of Christ, we want to welcome you and we want you to grapple and know and love Jesus. We want you to wrestle with his teachings. We want to introduce you so that you will know and love Christ. And if you are indeed in Christ, then we are washed and sanctified. We are all saints who are becoming increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus. So if I were to summarize what I've said so far, I think Psalm 133 makes a case that Christian unity is a beautiful thing. It's a glorious thing. And then Ephesians 2 tells us that this Christian unity has been obtained by the blood of of Jesus. And so therefore, we are to enjoy and preserve and protect this Christian unity that Christ has purchased by his blood. To let disunity run rampant in our church body would be like an immune system that is attacking itself. It would be like You know, if you have a nut allergy, you eat a peanut and your own body is going to kill you in reacting to something that is not a disease or or, or whatever else. And and we need to pull out the EpiPen of the spirit to stab ourselves in the thigh so that we can breathe once again and and think clearly. And, And that's my prayer for us this morning. That as we look at these things, as we see what Christ has gloriously accomplished by his blood, we would not let division on this issue or a hundred other issues pull us apart as the people of God. So I have a couple of applications and, and I have modest goals. I know that our world is fractured by division and polarization on this issue. You see it at work. You see it everywhere. You see it on the news. Everything is about... You know, you you can throw out all the acronyms. I won't do it for you. We see racism and hatred and anger and the heinous outworking of sin all the time. And frankly, I have little hope that this will be solved outside of the redeeming work of Jesus. You can't legislate away someone's prejudice within their heart. Only when people come under the lordship of Jesus will these things be addressed. So apart from the saving work of Jesus, we will continue to see ethnic partiality and hatred and animosity and prejudice and violence in our world. But here's my call, my modest goal, and, and it's not that modest, I suppose, that the church would be the living and breathing counterexample of what we see running rampant 
in our world. That we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, 3. So our unity within this church, welcoming everyone who walks in here, regardless of their place or season or how they look or color of their skin or background or whatever else, that that would be an example to a watching world. And Jesus himself prayed for this reality. John seventeen twenty one says, just as Jesus praying his high priestly prayer, and he says that they, his disciples, not just the ones in that time, but across all time, he says that they may all be one, unified, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us for this purpose, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The reality is that our unity within the church has an evangelistic aim and impact. That as the world looks in on the church, do they say, you know what, they're dealing with the same things we're dealing with? Or do they say, they seem to be dealing with that in a different way. They're unified over who they believe. They're they're facing these things differently. Our oneness and unity has the purpose so that people will see that Jesus is indeed Lord and Savior, and that the power of the gospel has the power to transform every human heart. It's the same thing that John thirteen thirty five says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. How will everyone know that we're disciples of Jesus? If you have love for one another. Our mutual love and unity in the church will authenticate and validate our verbal witness of Jesus. And so, my hope this morning is that our church would truly be a lighthouse in the midst of the darkness. That we wouldn't hide it under a bushel. That what we do here in the church, our shared unity in Christ would be a clear communicator, that it would proclaim the glory of Christ and the power of the gospel in uniting people who are all different, who all have different perspectives, different backgrounds, to come together and say, Jesus is Lord. And we're going to work together in light of that shared unity because my neighbor is made in the image of God, has been covered by the blood of Jesus, and we're going to work through all of our differences by looking mainly at what the Bible says and how do we work through these issues. So, This is a place where regardless of your color or background or struggles or accent or social status or educational choices or occupation or citizenship status or zip code or whatever else, you will be welcomed. And we will be united in Christ and seek to show the world through our love and unity, our shared commitment to Jesus, that we will not be divided but that we will make the main thing the main thing, Jesus Christ as Lord. Let me just close with one maybe personal anecdote that I hope will just motivate us towards loving and listening and weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice through things that at times can be painful. So it was April of 2020 in the heart of the global pandemic. We all remember this. Everything was shut down and there were stories emerging on the news about 
anti, what some people are calling anti-Asian violence. And, and there were news stories of violent attacks and seemingly directed toward Asians because of uh, thinking there was a connection to COVID. So there was one particular attack that personally hit home a little bit. It was a stabbing of a family of four in a Sam's Club in Midland, Texas, where there was a two-year-old and a six-year-old, and they were stabbed by that armed assailant because he thought they were Chinese. And so this was an isolated incident, but I'm Chinese-American, and so you can imagine I was a little shaken as I think about my four and six and eight and 10 and 12-year-old. And so I shared this with my pastoral staff. We're on Zoom, and I say, you know, I'm not that worried, but I just told Stephanie, don't go out, don't buy groceries, I'll pick them up, don't run errands. And um, I wasn't planning on getting emotional, but that's okay. One of my staff members said to me, if you need us to go with you to buy groceries, if you need one of us to go with Stephanie, to run errands, we would be glad to go with you. That's the picture of the unity of love and kindness and unity in the spirit that we share here in this body. They didn't, and we can talk through all, you know, what was our right to fear and all the other issues and, you know, isolated incident. And they didn't say, well, Stephen, you're being unreasonable. That, that was in Texas. What they said was, we're with you. We will walk with you. We love you. We care about you. And so I just pray that, that would increasingly mark us as a people. And by God's grace, I have seen that be the case. And I pray that that would increase and grow. And in the final day, we will marvel at what God has done in drawing people from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation gathered around his throne. And in that day, we will sing and we will sing loudly that it is good and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church that loves you and loves our neighbors. And I pray that you would increasingly help us to love you and to love our neighbors. Make us a light in the midst of the darkness, so that as the world looks in, they say, I want what you have, because what you have is different. Oh, may that be the reality, oh God. Do that in our hearts, by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.